Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm sure if he forfeit, he will not take his flesh. What's that good for? To bait fish with all. If it will feed nothing else, it will feed my revenge. He hath disgraced me and hindered me. Half a million laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies, and what's his reason? I am a Jew! Hello and welcome to The Play's The Thing. This is The Merchant of Venice, Act 3, and you just heard Al Pacino's famous delivery of a famous speech from Act 3, Scene 1. I am Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And we are thrilled that you are joining us here again. Hello, Heidi. Hello, Sarah Jane. How are you two? Doing great, Tim. Thanks for asking. Really well, Tim. How are you? I'm doing very well. Part of the reason that I'm doing very well, Sarah Jane, is because I recently left the Pacific Northwest and I was chased by fires the whole way to Atlanta almost. And Heidi, you're kind of still in the middle of it. Yeah, it's true. I know you drove through Colorado on your way and it it's get, it's clearing up, but we do have just the, the smoke and the smell of the fire lingering in the air. There's just fires everywhere. Yeah. My, I had a couple of colleagues uh, where I used to teach at Gutenberg in Eugene, Oregon, and a couple of them had to flee their homes Wow! because they were afraid that the fires would get caught. I heard that today, so today is the 16th of September, is that right? 17th of September, um, that, that uh, they're having thunderstorms in certain parts of Oregon. So I'm kind of hopeful that it will dampen the fires. But when I was passing through Colorado, Heidi, yeah. I arrived on a 94 degree day and it was brown, a wall of brown charcoal soot yeah. on the horizon. And the next day, or maybe it was more like 
18 hours later, more than that, um, it dropped down to 30 degrees and there was snow on the trees when I left Colorado. You live in a crazy state, Heidi. No, it's, it is like there's, it's a, it's a state of extremes. Yeah. Um, All the seasons are very extreme. We have uh, extreme, uh, like natural disasters that happen here quite a bit. So it's just, you know, it's divided politically. It's, it's just one of those places that feels very intense to live in depending on the, you know, the day and the time of year. And yeah. Um, Sarah Jane, do you guys refer to, or is it only an American thing to refer to different parts of your country as red states, blue states? Is that just an American thing or do you guys use similar nomenclature? Not really. Uh, I think that is an American thing. Yeah. Yeah. There is an association between blue and Tory and red and labor. Mm -hmm. There is. Mm. That's the opposite here. Yeah. 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 It's the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Red is is Trump. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yeah. It's the opposite. So if you're blue, you're a Tory. Yeah. Okay. That's how interesting. I wonder how they got kind of well, they flip flopped. Anyway, there's a long history behind that, and I'm sure that Kodak would have it, but I don't. Uh, you guys, we are in the heartbeat of Merchant of Venice, and we just heard. I mean. Probably the most famous speech, other than one of the closing argument speeches, or probably maybe from Porsche's closing speech in Act Five, we just heard Al Pacino in the movie version give the famous I am because I am a Jew speech. And as part of his um as part of his delivery, there's there's this repeated refrain, and I wanted to start the podcast asking you guys about it. He repeats this phrase, let him look to his bond. He was wont to call me usurer, let him look to his bond. He was wont to lend money for a Christian courtesy, let him look to his bond. So there's Shylock talking about Antonio and kind of getting, hoping that he is going to exact revenge. Why does he repeat that phrase, let him look to his bonds so frequently? I mean, it's such a key to understanding not only Shylock, but the entire play, the notion of bonds. What does it mean to have a bond with another human? What does it mean to have a bond with society? What does it mean to owe somebody a debt and to have that debt repaid? Um, To make somebody a promise and be held to the promise? Uh, that that notion of bonding, what forms bonds? How do how does a society and an individual uphold the bonds that they have made? Uh, is I think one of the interpretive keys, not only to Shylock but to all of the characters, all the main characters, and the play itself. Heidi, I. I- in thinking about your background in psychology and how um, when a person is kind of trapped in a, in a psychological state, I mean, I've, I've been this way. Mm-hmm. I will cycle on a certain idea or a certain, maybe even a certain like phrasing. And mm-hmm. it's like, you can't get loose of it. Did you ever think about Shylock in that regard? 
Man, that's such a great comment and question. Yes, he he has this obsessive tendency, um, which you know, in some now, now in in looking at Shylock, and we've talked about this kind of the weight of cultural history on on this particular character. Uh, now he's almost always played seriously or even tragically, but at the time it's likely he would have been played as a comic villain, you know, like rubbing his hands back and forth, pacing across the stage with the big, you know, with various trappings in his costume to indicate that he was a Jew that would have been stereotypical for the time. And, um, and so I think there's, there's multiple ways to interpret his character, but I think to your point, if I was an actor or director performing this play, I would put him with this obsessive repetition here in this particular scene um, that this is the thing he's clinging to. It's the, to Shylock, it's the ordering principle of his role in this gilded society. And, and he is, he is stuck on that. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's cycling through it. So Heidi, I'm glad that you brought up if I was an actor or a director of this play, because I'm going to come back to that later in the podcast, because I want to ask each of you, how would you direct this play? You know, like, what would you choose as kind of like your primary theme for this play? Because um, I think it's very much, I, I, I think a director has to make some decisions. But before we get to that, Sarah Jane, any notion of why Shylock is repeating this phrase? Why is he going over and over on this phrase, let him look to his bond? Sarah Jane, you got to add to what Heidi was saying. I think there's also a dramatic element here, especially in the light of him being this comic figure in that he's rubbing his hands, accelerating things towards the climax, which is um, he wants his revenge. The bond, of course, here he doesn't mention it specifically, but the audience should know this is actually a pound of flesh. So what Shylock is talking about here is something gruesome that may well result in the death of Antonio. Mm. And rhetorically, it's very neat. He re- repeats it three times. And there's a certain relish here, isn't there? Right. <laughs> Antonio's done this, but I've got him. I've right. got him. And uh, he says he's going to... He basically says he's hooked Antonio. He says he's going to use this pound of flesh to bait fish with all, mm-hmm. that it has no value. No value. Just that it's his. And um, I think it's, it's meant to get the audience bristling. Yeah. And squirming. He's squirming in our seats. Like, I mean, just, I, I think I mentioned in the first podcast how a pound of flesh is kind of slipped into everyday parlance for us as English speakers. But when you back up and think about what, what that would actually mean to have a pound of flesh exacted from your body, it's just so gruesome and terrifying, terrifying. Mm. Um, Mm. Let's shift over to the other main plot, which is going to become unified. These two plots later in the play. Um, We have been, we have met, Portia, we have met Bassanio, and now in Act Three, they are together. And Bassanio is hoping that he is going to discover which of these three caskets, gold, silver, and lead, kind of will open its door 
and give him Porsche's heart and inheritance, et cetera, et cetera. Sarah Jane, I want to start with you. Uh, does Porsche cheat a little bit? Does she, is she um, giving Bassanio some hints through the singer's mouth about, um, <laughs> about which coffin, gold, silver, or lead he should choose? Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about we've, that. We've heard her do it with Morocco as well. Yeah. She's oh, also oh. said to him, I, uh, Maiden's eyes are not solely lead to sort of say, don't uh, choose lead. Uh, 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 and uh, uh. in this little song with these musicians on the stage, there's a sort of, there's a double hint uh-huh. to Bassanio. So he would be really quite um, dull if he failed to choose the right casket after this. So not only does the explicit meaning of the rhyme point him to the lead casket, because because the explicit meaning is that fancy is engendered in the eye and fed with gazing, and fancy dies in the cradle where it lies. So if he's listened to the words, he knows that anything gilded and fanciful is going to be wrong. And then we have this repeated monorhyme, bread, head, nourished, telling him that subconsciously lead is the, right. the place to go. Right. So maybe Portia doesn't have a lot of faith in Bassanio's ability <laughs> to choose. Um, it, must, it must be quite a, a humorous scene in some ways. And who knows what the dancers are doing? Maybe they're gesturing towards this cast. Pointing to it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. That's again, that's like, it, that to me could be like a directorial or an actor's decision. Um, but we'll talk about that. A little bit later. Okay, I'm going to come back to a question that I asked the two of you in Act One about Bassanio. Bassanio has to, has to choose the right, chooses the right casket, and he recognizes in doing so that the outward appearance of the casket isn't representative of what is on the inside. So there's a very gospel notion, right? That what's on the inside is what's most important. But is this a shift in behavior for Bassanio in Act 3? I mean, haven't we kind of seen him being more focused previously on what's on the outside, emphasizing that what's on the outside is most important to him? I I mean, I think we have. I think that's... uh, I I mean, maybe that's up for debate, but I, I do think we have. That's his... When he first talks about Portia... There is a lady richly left. Uh, he leads with her riches and right. then her beauty and right. then her virtue. Um, and he borrows money. He uh, he is bonded then to Antonio. He has a bond to Antonio. He borrows money in order to impress the lady. Um, and, and he's planning to pay Antonio back from the riches that he gets from her. So, I, I mean, that's not... Those aren't usually actions or qualities associated with a man of great character worthy of this lady of virtue and beauty and and wealth. So, um, but we also know he's that Portia loves him and he's been with her and, uh, you know, there's been some kind of change of heart. She sees something in him. And don't you think that I really, really want to hear what Sarah Jane has to say about this, but there's so much about, because you said she, that you, 
think she, she, that she represents the Holy Spirit. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on her influence on Bassanio. Um, again, his name, Bassanio, it kind of harkens to the Bassanos, the test of worthiness. And so somehow he either has been made worthy uh, or she sees something in him that has made him worthy all along. But so much of this play has to do with what's on the outside versus what's on the inside. There's, there's the, the caskets. Uh, and then what is in the inside is, is what reveals the true character, right? Um, the, the, the silver really is a blinking idiot inside, even though it looks like silver on the outside. So that, um, it's that whitewashed tombs kind of idea that Christ gets to when he's talking to the Pharisees, but somehow Bassanio is, the worthy one. So I don't know, Sarah Jane, what are your thoughts on how he goes from the beginning to where he is now? I think that Bassanio has possibly been more honest with Portia than we've given him credit for, because he does tell her, um, all the wealth I had ran in my veins. I was a gentleman. And then I told you true. Hmm. So he did say to her, he said, when I did first impart my love to you, I told you that my quality, my uh, status was, was basically my noble blood, nothing else. Um, and he say, he's saying this in Act 3, Scene 2. He says, and yet, dear lady, rating myself at nothing, you shall see how much I was a braggart. When I told you my state was nothing, I should then have told you that I was worse than nothing. Hmm. So he has told Portia that he has nothing, but he, he hasn't told her that he has less than nothing and is indebted. So I think you're right. She did see in him the virtue and, and obviously didn't mind that he had nothing. Hmm. The thing is that no suitor would gain access to Portia if they didn't come with a huge train of wealth. So that is the sort of the baseline for access to Portia's hand. And if we look at this in terms of this allegory that I've been considering, it is Bassanio covered by the wealth and, if you like, the, the kind of beauty and the perfectness of Antonio that makes him able to access the throne of Portia. Hmm. Um, so he comes with nothing. He doesn't come saying, I am worthy of you, I'm bringing all my wealth and therefore I deserve you. He comes with nothing. Everything he has is borrowed. And that's similar, I suppose, to the sinner who comes before the cross with nothing and is covered by the perfect blood of Christ hmm. and, and then gains the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so I think that might be how that allegory works, well, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't work if, if um, Bassanio came with his own wealth and sort of bought his way into Portia, Portia's right. life. I, th I think what you're saying is interesting to me. I had never thought of that before, but it's, I think it really works. And it, it works with the bond plot too, because to be bonded, to be in debt is not condemned within the play. It is, it's the debtor who requires uh, the bond to be repaid without mercy that's condemned within the play. So, you know, we might look down on Bassanio and say that his indebtedness makes him unworthy. But according to what you're saying, and I think that it does work as an interpretive key to the play, that that, that it it isn't being bonded that makes him unworthy. 
it's Shylock who requires that to be repaid without any mercy at all, without in, without relationship um, being a factor in the repayment of the debt. It's and law of course, versus grace. Exactly. And of course, Shylock is bonded too because he borrowed the money off Tubal. And so there's a sense that um, none of us have anything, really. We're all indebted mm. in some way. And all we can hope for is mercy. Mm. That's really good. I want to use this opportunity to go back to uh, the speech that we opened with, uh, the famous speech from Shylock. And I actually want us to listen to it closer to full length. We just played a snippet at the top of the show. And what I'm going to ask you guys coming out of it is, um, what makes this speech among the really great ones in the Shakespearean corpus. That sounded so academic in the Shakespearean corpus. But really, um, I mean, to me, it's kind of, it's climbing up there with um, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow in Macbeth and um, some of of Hamlet's more famous speeches and maybe Richard III's opening speech. Uh, Now is the winter of our discontent. So that's the question I'm going to ask coming out of it. But first, let's, let's hear the longer rendition of Al Pacino's speech from Merchant of Venice, Act 3, Scene 1. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated my enemies, and what's his reason? I am a Jew! Hath that a Jew eyes? Hath that a Jew hands? Organs? Dimensions? Senses? Affections? Passions? Fed with the same food? Hurt with the same weapons? Subject to the same diseases? Healed by the same means? Warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge? If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferings be? By Christian example. Why revenge? The villainy you teach me, I will execute, and it shall go hard, but I will bet the instruction. So, Heidi, there it is. I am a Jew. Um, Why has this speech climbed in the ranks, or why does it kind of sit among the great speeches in Shakespeare's canon? Sure. Well... I think that it is, I think if you were playing Shylock, you wouldn't, you, you just would want to get there. You'd want this speech. This is, this is his, this is his moment to justify himself. This is Mm -hmm. his, uh, his time to speak for himself and for his people, uh, and for his vocation, um, for his function in society. He's, he's in many ways the projection of the society's sins, as well as being an outcast because of, of his religion and his race. And, and this is his time to speak. And he, what, 
I mean, one thing you and I, Tim, and and I'm I know that Sarah Jane sees this too. We've talked about over and over again on these podcasts is Shakespeare's magnificent humanism that he's even though Shylock at the time would have been played very stereotypically. We even know that from the cast list and seeing the actor who played him. Um, that he Shakespeare is never content just to fling barbs at a villain. The villain has to be humanized at some point, whether it's Caliban, whether it's Malvolio, whether you know, whoever it is within the play. Um, even Iago has a bit of humanizing to a certain extent. Uh, so there, there just is this sense that Shakespeare has to give his villain a voice, something to uh, make us see the pathos uh, as well as the evil within the soul. And I, I also think another thing about this speech that is that is great is that it, even in humanizing Shylock, even in giving him a voice and a point of view that is sympathetic to a certain extent, that even in that, we also see the hardness of his heart. And mm-hmm. he does all of it in this one speech. I I think I mentioned this to you guys off the air. I had a friend send me a, a podcast um, that was kind of pulling apart Merchant as an anti-Semitic play. And the professor that was making the case, I um, listened to the whole podcast and I kept waiting for her to get to act three, scene one, this speech, because it's so powerful. And it does just what you say. I, I feel like it does just what it says that you're doing, Heidi, which is um, it humanizes Shylock. So the Jew of Malta by Christopher Marlowe, a roughly contemporaneous play that was performed a few years before this one was written, it really casts uh, a similar character as Shylock, a Jew, um, in all the kind of trappings of um, race and creed and he kind of remains a caricature throughout the entire play but shakespeare undoes that i mean part of the question that we asked at the top of the very first podcast was is this an anti-semitic play because there are certainly elements in shylock that are cast to kind of like it seems like um play on his audience's view of who Jews were. Um, But this is the kind of disturbing element that I think really kind of prohibits us from just issuing a blanket statement. This is a, an anti-Semitic play, maybe written by an anti-Semitic author. You kind of have to deal with this speech. And I think it's a speech that just repeating what you're saying, Heidi, that it, it makes us, it rips us out of being able to just cast Shylock as a caricature of this other that we, that we don't like. Um, and I think especially after the Holocaust, maybe this is part of the reason why this speech in particular has risen among the ranks. But now I'm answering the question that I haven't asked you yet, Sarah Jane. Sarah Jane, why do you think this speech is kind of recalled with such, um, is given so much honor? I think it's, as, as you've made the case really well, I think it's a very important speech. Um, 
in one sense, it evokes our sympathy for Shylock, as and as Heidi said, and, and, and in the same instance, it conveys his hardness of heart. And that's a pretty um, sophisticated piece of writing. But I think in terms of um, the rhetoric, the style, the content of this speech, it's not it's not one of Shakespeare's great speeches, in my opinion. Mm. Um, I don't know about in your text, but in mine, it's not even in blank verse. This is prose and it's mm-hmm. very much, a, it's ah. a rant. And the rhetorical devices that Shakespeare uses are quite straightforward, powerful, but simple and repetitive. So he uses the conditional mm. a lot, if this, if that, um, rhetorical questions answered, um, so it does, it has a, it packs a lot of punch, but it, it's not full of the complexity, the imagery, um, and the, some of the beauty that we see in the great speeches. But setting that aside, um, you know, what is this speech actually about? I think it begins with that really humorous line to bait fish with all, which will get the audience laughing. Um, and then the speech is really about Shylock's unbated revenge that he is absolutely set on revenge Mm. um so the one breath he's saying i have all these um human faculties and and this kind of softness and vulnerability and i deserve your pity but on the other hand i am going to pity no one that's how the speech ends and he says you know am i not like a christian do i not cry like a christian am i not poisoned like a christian or like anybody else and then at the end he says and if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. Now, this is a really interesting um, misunderstanding that Shylock has. Because, of course, the Christian repayment of wrong is not revenge. It's forgiveness right. and mercy. So there are two things we can take from this. Either Shylock is um, just deliberately misunderstanding things. And, and is kind of fashioning revenge as a Christian idea when he knows it's not. Or he's been treated so poorly by the Christians in the play in Venice that this is what he has concluded that the Christian religion is about. So the audience here, when, when he climaxes with that single word, revenge, if a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. The audience should be saying, no, Shylock, no, it's not revenge. Mm. <laughs> That's mm. not the Christian response. Um, and then, of course, this, this rant that he has here can't be read, I think, independently of the other two uh, major kind of monologues he has in this scene. So he said that he's, you know, he's to be pitied in this speech. In the next speech, when he's told about Jessica, he says, I would, my daughter were dead at my foot and the jewels in her ear. He says it twice. Mm-hmm. I would she were hearsed at my foot and the ducats in her coffin. Well, there he's been pricked, but he's not bleeding. Mm. He, he's not, he says, I wouldn't cry at the death of my daughter. I just want my money back. Now that is not consistent with the picture he painted of himself in the previous speech. So that's really interesting. He says, yeah. um, he'd rather have his daughter dead than alive and the money back. And then that's, that's even strengthened again at the end of this scene where he says, um, he would rather have Antonio alive and have his money back. And that's how much he wants the revenge. So I think Shakespeare here is really um, building this picture of a kind of twisted, perhaps stereotype from um, the history of, of England um, in, the, you know, in the 1600s and back to the 1290s of um, a character who, who can, cannot be sympathised with in some ways. 
Um, so that's how I read that scene. But um, I don't think that means we can't sympathize with Shylock or that he's not a complex character. I think, yeah, those are my thoughts on that. Right. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm curious about Shylock because I can't not read a, this character without the full weight of my cultural connotations with the Jewish people and their sufferings and their um, representation in the the faith of my of my family. Right, like they are the pre. They're mm, like think the, of how they're to the say that. Bear, they're the forebears of. The cute the yes. faith of your family. Yes. They are part of Christian history, the foundation of Christian, the chosen people of God. And but to your point, Sarah Jane, the Elizabethan audience would have had the same weight of cultural connotations, and including Shakespeare himself. And that weight at the time would have been almost entirely and wholly negative. Mm-hmm. So to your point. This speech is complex and that an Elizabethan audience is would have heard it very differently than a modern audience for exactly the reasons that you're saying. And and also the point that you made about Christian, the Christian response to uh uh would would not be revenge, it would be forgiveness and mercy. And of course, that is true. And that would have been what the Elizabethans thought when they heard that, because they're much more connected to their own faith, which was on a daily basis and very positive for them. Um, However, in modern times, there's a widespread cultural misunderstanding that Christians are the oppressors, the European oppressors, right? So we are the vengeful colonialists who are coming in to, to take over all these cultures and impose our beliefs upon them. And so even as a Christian, I didn't even catch that the first time I heard that speech. So I think that what's so fascinating to me about this play, and and it all kind of conglomerates in this speech, I think, and then later on in the trial scene, is, is that there's something about Jewishness that bears the weight of a culture, and it's a dividing line in, in world culture and it has always been, and maybe always will be. And I think that that sense of uh, of that needs to kind of pervade how we read this play, because they would have heard these things very differently back then than we do today, but we have just as strong as reactions as they did. Mm. I find that fascinating. Yeah. Okay, listen, Heidi, you've opened the door up to it, and I'm going to ask you both a hard question. You just gave the backdrop to... Um, the question really well. Here we are in the 21st century. Um, we've accumulated 500 years of history, not only of the production of this play, but of the the culture that surrounded Shakespeare's England and the horrible things that have been done to the Jews, in particular in the 20th, 20th century. Um, make a production of this play. It, it seems to me like you can't just perform it as if it dropped from the sky and we had no, um, we had accumulated no history between now and 1600 when the play was written. So I'm asking you both to kind of imagine yourselves as the director producer of Merchant of Venice in 2020. And you have access to 
everything you need to make a sophisticated, excellent production of this play at a major um, theater in a major uh, American or British city. And you have to, this is part of your job as a director to not only just to not only choose the actors that are going to conform to the theme that you want to emphasize, but you also have to choose that theme. And there are a few different themes that we can choose from. One of them is the question of race. Another is the question of law versus grace. Another is the question of money and mercantilism. Okay. Those are at least like three different like distinct possibilities that I think this play would kind of neatly conform to in a, in a thematic manner. So now I'm going to ask you, you're in charge of a production. How are you going to, how are you going to do it? What are you, how are you going to like thematically, what are you going to emphasize? You guys are like, you're laughing. I can, the listeners can't see you, but I can see you kind of laughing and I'm going to interpret those laughs as slightly uncomfortable squirm. <laughs> <laughs> is that no is that I just think it's such fair? a good question and so I'm gonna I just talk for a long time so I'm gonna say ask Sarah Jane to <laughs> to go first on this one do you like I how she did that Sarah Jane right <laughs> off, so yeah it's a wonderful question and what you're really asking us Tim is you know how would you direct this play which is a massive question so I'll try and stick closely to what you've said about themes and I love thinking about this I would love to direct this play um and I'm I'm really influenced by that production I saw by Rupert Gould where he set it in Las Vegas it's very hard to get Mm. that out of my head now Gould is is sort of um has a bit of a reputation for getting an idea and then manipulating the plate to kind of shove it into to fit into his idea and I don't like doing that I think it doesn't work it doesn't honor what Shakespeare's produced right um but I did I did love that production set in Las Vegas in the casino which brought out the mercantile element of the transactions between the characters and uh this is where I want to um just bring to our attention this brilliant lecture by a professor at Oxford University called Emma Smith, which listeners can easily listen to for free online. It's in the Oxford University podcasts. And she talks about the play as being purely about um, a series of trades of profit and loss. She has no sense of of this kind of self-sacrificial love where you lose everything in order to gain everything. Um, And so her main point is Belmont is not an ethical alternative to the mercantile world of Venice, but it's logical extension. So she goes a long way to say that Belmont and Venice are basically the same place because in both places, the characters are behaving in a way that is about pragmatic personal gain, monetary gain. Now, I don't agree with her about this, even though I think her lecture is brilliant. So the one thing that my production would have to do would be to honour Shakespeare's distinctions between Venice and Belmont. And I've spent a lot of time in Venice. I love it. And one of the things Mm. it's famous for is its veneer. So I read a while ago a little snippet of a poem from Browning called Toccata of Gallippi. And that's all about how Venice has this beautiful facade and all the buildings have beautiful facades and you walk around the corner and you see the facade is about six inches thick and behind 
is this kind of ugly brickwork. So really, yes. and, and I'm going to put you on the spot. You may not be able to answer this. Like how old do you think that brickwork is? The same age as the building, but the idea was you would build the building and then you would put a yeah. beautiful face on it, but why waste the oh, money wow. to cover up the back end, which nobody sees. You just want to make a good first impression. And this goes hand in hand, I think with the sort of the carnival of Venice where people put on costumes and masks and look magnificent, but you don't really know what's underneath. So I think Venice in my production would need to look like that. It would need to be gaudy, meretricious, tacky, over the top, um, and have a kind of be like the gold casket essentially. So it would be so grotesquely ornate that it would be ugly. And Belmont would need to look simple, beautiful, um, and really different to Venice. So that's one thing I'm absolutely certain on. And the rest I'm, I'm really still thinking about. Like, how could you show on the stage revenge and mercy visually? I'd, I haven't got an answer to that yet, but those there, would be things I would, I would want to um, figure out. So Sarah Jane, sticking with the part of the theme that you feel confident about, that there's this... Uh, facade over the kind of main structure of Venice. Is there a way that you see the play betraying that by the end of the play? In, in other words, um, we talked earlier in the podcast about how Bassanio looks past the outward appearance of the lead casket to find Portia inside. Do you think that the play has the kind of structure within it to support the undermining of these kind of um, these commer- these crass commercial sort of relationships that it's been building in the first three acts? Yes, I think it does. And I, I think it comes about in the scene we haven't got to yet, which is the courtroom scene, but we can already see the ugliness building up behind the facade of Bassanio's borrowed wealth right, which is, as we've just seen, Shylock's um, rage, bitterness, insistence on revenge, Antonio's seemingly kind of despairing, pitiful, plaintive uh, letter to Bassanio saying, can I just see you before I die? And I think the play comes very close to, to turning sort of belly up with that ugly side on display. But what actually happens is that we see how love covers it all and that love can even redeem Venice. And so first of all, it's the love between Bassanio and Antonio. And then it's the love of Portia for Bassanio that uh, is able to to overcome all of that ugliness behind the facade and actually um, kind of bring true beauty to the whole play. And then, of course, at the end, we have Portia and Bassanio with Antonio bound to them as well. So everyone's kind of together in this um, transactional currency of, yeah. of love, if you like, which overcomes all the mercantile ones. That's compelling, Sarah Jane. I so find that's that really kind compelling. of a bit crudely sketched out, but um, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Heidi, what do you think? How, if you're a director, would you theme your 21st century production man so i thought that sarah jane was going to focus on the law versus grace 
dynamic. Um, and because I was going to say, I would absolutely make this a, 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 I would focus on the money thing. Um, but I also think it's a bit of a piece, right? I would not focus on the race issue barely at all. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. One, I think that that is uh, secondary to the larger themes of the play. I think that the issue of Jewishness takes over the interpretation of the play for a lot of reasons that we've already discussed. Um, and I think that Shylock himself bearing the, whether it's, whether he is, whether it, this is because Shakespeare drew him so beautifully or whether he's taken on the weight of our cultural connotations of Jewishness, he, he becomes a character that's bigger than the play, than, than the role that he inhabits within the play. He takes it. Yeah. And, and I don't think that's wrong. I think that's good. That's great um, point, Heidi. It's a great point. But, Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, thank you. I think that that's fine, but that's not what I would focus on. And I think too many modern uh, productions do they lose this bigger question. And then I think what happens to the play is that it diminishes the play because then the play becomes two separate storylines, right? It's got uh, Shylock demanding his pound of flesh and then it's got the love story over here. And, and that's, it becomes disunified if you focus entirely on Shylock as a character and give the play as like this backdrop for Shylock. Um, and, and I think it's a mistake because then the play becomes disjointed because Shylock is a part of the larger contemplation of the play, which comes down to, I think, this issue of law versus grace and the issue of the mercantile gilded society. Uh, and this is in some ways an expose of that for all the reasons that Sarah Jane mentioned. Um, and then and then what that looks like in relationships between people and characters, how that plays out between people who love each other, um, Portia and Bassanio, between Antonio and Bassanio, uh, between all these other secondary characters and relationships that take place, everybody ends up kind of pairing up. Um, we have multiple marriages in this play. And unless you have that thread of connection, the idea, the, the issue of bonding and indebtedness and how does mercy resolve all of those bonds? Um, does it dissolve the bonds or does it make the bonds stronger, right? Um, there's all these questions in these individual relationships and Shylock plays a part in that, for sure, a big part in that, but he's not the crux, he's not. Mm. And I think plays the productions that focus on him as the crux kind of miss out on the opportunity mm. to do that. So I wouldn't minimize Shylock, but I definitely would try as hard as I could with the setting and um, the way everything looks. I, I would try to keep the focus on those those bigger threads of do, great ideas. Do you think, Heidi, that you could kind of um, have your cake and eat it too? And what I mean is if your production does emphasize those larger, those, those mm -hmm. big themes, is there a way that you could still, because of the strength and kind of like vitality of Shylock's character, keep your, um, place the theme away from the question of anti-Semitism, but still in a way kind of keep it because Shylock's a strong enough character. 
Absolutely. I think you have to keep it. You have to make him, yeah, I would have, I'm always interested in people, right? I would have a really strong actor play Bassanio. And I don't see huh. a lot of productions that do that. Huh. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, you always, you've got Al Pacino playing playing Shylock. And who knows who in the world played Bassanio in that production, right? Like, so that's, I think that it's Bassanio that ends up, and Antonio, they end up being kind of, shunted aside i think in favor of the big actors who want to play shylock um and and that's not bad but i think that those characters matter a lot those they need really good actors uh, Mm. in those roles um because they are the resolution right you have the problem character you have Shylock, the bond keeper. He's a projection of the society's sins. He, he, he exhibits no charity or grace, partly because he represents the law uh, as a Jew and also because he's the bond keeper. So how can he? Mm. Right? He's the one demanding the bond be paid. And so he can't exhibit charity and grace. So it makes sense that then he's portrayed as a Jew in the play. Um, exactly. And not so, the other way around. Exactly. Right. So you have to have... I mean, this is Shakespeare. This is, it's a harmonious play. You have to then have the harmony of that on the other side, the characters that do exhibit mercy, which is more than just Portia. Portia and Bassanio have this bond and Antonio and Bassanio have this bond. And so there has to be also, and then the secondary characters mirror that in various ways. Um, And so those threads are intended to tie together, not in Shylock, but in the redemptive characters in the story. And that's how I would, I would, yeah. I would cast it like that. Yeah. I love it, Heidi. Absolutely. And that redemptive ending then is, is, it just eludes us at this play, doesn't it? Right. There, there yes. isn't a wedding. So that's really interesting. But even Shylock gets redeemed. Modern audiences don't like that. He's seen to be robbed of his conversion, religion. Right? Yeah. yeah. But, but thematically it makes perfect sense. Go on. Uh, for, for the reasons you said, that Shylock is a Jew because Shakespeare has a thematic conception of, of how he wants to play out this allegory of law and grace mm-hmm. and not the other way around. It's not that he thought specifically, I would like to write a play about a Jewish character. First right. and foremost, as you say, the spotlight has has kind of shifted over the centuries, which can, can lead to us missing out big chunks of the play um and also what you said about harmonizing I just I just want to dwell on that a second because I think uh, one thing that's really apparent in the language of the play is that there's no music in Venice hmm. I think huh. that's right and that that Belmont is a place full of music yes, and right. light yeah huh. I think there might be some music possibly that night when they are going to have a party and Shylock says, I don't want any music in my house. I don't know whether we actually hear the music, but um, Venice would have to be somewhere with no music whatsoever, somewhere dark, somewhere gaudy. And Belmont, I think, is a place of music and light. And even in the darkness of Belmont, the thing that's emphasised is the light is coming. The light is coming. Um, And so that might show something about the difference between revenge and forgiveness, perhaps. Mm. I would like to see both of these productions. <laughs> hey, have, I, have either one of you, I think the answer for Sarah Jane is yes. I think I'll ask it anyway. Have either of you ever tried to like 
direct something like this. No, sorry, not something like this. Tried to direct something, a play, a musical production of some sort. I never have. I was the assistant director of Much Ado About Nothing in my in high school because my AP English teacher, Mr. Ribovich, who sometimes <laughs> listens to the podcast because I love Hello, him Mr. Ribovich. so, so much to this day, um, he asked me to come help direct the play. And I liked it. I liked it. But I was never like a theater kind of person the way you yeah. are. So I was always more interested in the literary stuff. And I like how you make us focus on that. You ask these questions, how would we stage it? Those kinds of things. I like those questions. Um, Sarah Jane, were you a theater kind of person? My forays into directing are slightly strange. The two <laughs> memorable ones... Uh, whether anyone cares about this, I don't know. I'll tell you anyway. So I I, I co-directed um, Alice in Wonderland at a girls' school, oh, and it was fun. it was incredible. We had all the costumes. We had a massive budget for costumes. We got these incredible costumes. The the children, the girls, were mostly sort of daughters of supermodels and film stars and racing car drivers. So they were incredibly good at looking amazing on stage and acting. And we used Gwen Stefani's music as the um, production kind of inspiration so that was loads of fun and then in my early 20s when I lived in Croatia for some reason I directed a production of the prime of Miss Jean Brodie in English and I literally dragged people off the street to be in it Uh, like really niche play no one's interested in it not particularly popular no one in the town I was living in could really speak English and um, I put it on in the naval base and had an audience. But looking back on it, I just think, what was I doing? I have no idea. (laughs) I loved it. I loved every minute of it, but it was just one of those things where I just think, why did you do that? I just love sentences begin that begin with when I was in my twenties and living in Croatia. (laughs) I'm always interested (laughs) working at a naval base after that. (laughs) Right. Tim, how would you stage this play? You're the actual playwright and mm. director and actor. It's hard, Heidi, because I, I, I am so torn. Because I really do, the more that I read this play, the more that I, I agree with both of you that the racial aspect of the play, which has been so highlighted in the last 70 years for absolutely understandable and respectable reasons, I don't see the play as supporting it. I see that as a sub theme within the play, not a major theme. And more and more, I see the two things that you, the two themes that you two emphasize as being the primary themes. It's law versus grace. It's over and over and over that kind of conflict between law and grace, which needs to be resolved. It really feels like it needs to be resolved by act five has come to the forefront in my rereading of the text. And also this emphasis on um, money as value, or the equation of money as value is also seemingly a, a chief primary theme of the play. So I feel the way that like probably you guys feel that there's this, the weight of history is toward emphasizing um, the racial injustice of 
that that Shylock is suffering. Yet at the same time, I think the text takes us away from that. So history supports the one. The text, I think, supports one of the other two themes. So I think I would try to do something like what we what what Heidi was. The reason I asked the question, Heidi, do you think that you could keep a major theme while also um, emphasize right. because Shylock is such a strong character? Could he still kind of stand out and highlight? the Semitic kind of like um, maybe undertones within the text. Do you think you could do that? That's what I would try to do. That's what I would really try to do because I think the artist in me wants to say, you've got to stick with a major theme or your play does not structurally support itself. Um, At the same time, I, I would like to be historically savvy enough to not ignore the last 70 years of history since the Holocaust. I keep using 70 years because the Holocaust being roughly 70 years ago. I just don't think you can kind of like brush that aside. I think it has to be, it has to be dealt with in a production. Mm -hmm. So that's my way of kicking the can and saying, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I think that's fair. You guys, let's look forward to our last two acts, acts four and act five. Give us a, like one thing from each of you that we should be looking forward to as we tend toward the conclusion of this play. Yeah. Um, so as an aside, this does, it's not a main focus of the scene, but it is in act three when, uh, Bassanio finally wins the hand of his lady, uh, and seals the deal with a kiss and then uh, Portia gives him a ring and uh, tells him not to give it to anybody. Good. I'm glad you're bringing this up. And this is often called the ring plot. You've got the bond plot. You've got the ring plot. You've got the flesh, the pound of flesh plot, right? Um, and so I, in looking at the next two acts, follow that ring is my advice. Don't lose the <laughs> ring. Uh, because this is such a complex play and there's so many different things going on in this play and there's so many different things to think about and, um, but the ring matters, uh, but it's, it's not always remembered, you know, somehow it's become kind of a minor thing. So I would say, follow the ring and then think about what the ring could potentially represent and why it might matter. Because exactly. The ring is another bond, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's great. Um, That's great, Heidi. Sarah Jane. This act that we've just looked at is pretty amazing in terms of its dramatic range. So as things are getting darker and darker and more vicious in Venice, Portia suddenly starts making loads of jokes. And then she's saying to Norris, I know what we're going to do. We're going to get dressed up as men. And just you wait to see how convincing I am with all my, um, my banter. And so I love seeing Portia's wit as we go forward. Mm-hmm. And how light and um, lighthearted she is about this. Not that she's not taking it seriously, but that she is so confident that she just sort of bides her time and then just unravels the knot and sets everything straight. So Portia is quite remarkable. Um, But there are many, we have to make a lot of leaps of faith with things happening very quickly, letters coming and going very quickly. And you think, well, how could that really happen? But just remember it's a play and, you know, 
perhaps there are some bits of poetic license that Shakespeare takes to make the plot work. Maybe it tells a truer story to have all these things that beggar belief. (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate that, that the levity of Portia at the conclusion of act three is kind of um, foreshadowing the kind of felicity of her role in, in act five. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, You know, one last comment. I, yeah, please. I think that this play is always so, so interesting to me because it always surprises me a little how funny it is because it just has this weight to it. And then you see a production and I'm always laughing at Portia. She's so funny and witty and quick on her feet and just delightful. Like I want to be her friend. Like it's one of those, like, look at that, that girl's so fun. But there's <laughs> also just these, this heavy this weight to this play and I I always think of this like I do with um with Romeo and Juliet that was like almost a comedy and then it like veers off into tragedy uh at just on a on a almost it almost feels like on a whim right on fortune I mean that's a big theme in in Romeo and Juliet which we're not doing right now so I'm not going to go off on it but it's like the rolling of the dice the spinning of the wheel of fortune and it it was has all of the hallmarks of a good Shakespearean comedy and then it just shifts at the last minute and becomes a tragedy. And, and I think that that's similar in some ways to Merchant in an opposite way. This almost feels like it has the weight of this, uh, of, of some very tragic themes. And then all of a sudden it veers off and becomes a comedy. And, and that's largely due to Portia being just so delightful. So I'm glad you pointed The confidence that, that- that Shakespeare has to mash, like frivol- not frivolity, to mash humor and darkness together side by side. And he, has, he offers no apologies for doing so. And it works. It works so well. And, and I think it's, he understood human nature enough that, that the kind of tides of our emotions uh, can be so swift. And he trusts that during a really dark moment, we can pretty easily move into like recognizing the humor and absurdity of another moment. Yeah, the moment where Graciano um, says, we are the Jasons, we have won the fleece. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Graciano, you didn't do anything. You just had nothing. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Hey, thanks, you guys. I'm really looking forward to act four. Uh, as always, um, I'm so glad that you guys are with this me on so the fun. show. I love this. Yeah. Uh, remember, listeners, you can join the conversation online on Facebook through our very active Close Reads discussion group. We're also on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods, P O D S, and via email by writing to Close Reads Podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget, we've got an email newsletter which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Please join us next week for Act 4 of The Merchant of Venice. And for Heidi White and for Sarah Jane Bentley, I am Tim McIntosh. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Thank you. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.